This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we launch into the prophet Micah with The Lord is coming, exile is coming, woe to oppressors, do not preach, and rulers denounced. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendorse.org or on your favorite podcast provider. There is a saying, sadly popular among some Lutherans, that Christianity doesn't move us from vice to virtue, it moves us from virtue to Christ. And it sounds good at the beginning, doesn't it? But it's a false dichotomy. Well, Scripture never pits Christ against virtue. In fact, Scripture calls us to virtue and talks about our struggle not only against vice, yes, but also toward virtue. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about that struggle against vice and for virtue, Dr. Michael Fieberkorn. He's pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in St. Charles, Missouri. He earned his Master of Divinity and Doctor of Philosophy degrees from Concordia Seminary, and he's author of the new book, Battle of the Soul, Luther Reforms Vice and Virtue. Dr. Fieberkorn, welcome. Oh, thank you. Good to be with you. Why have the ideas of vice and virtue been rejected by some Lutherans today? Well, I think the primary reason is is we haven't talked about them a lot. They're in Luther, but they've sort of been discarded by our, our emphasis on the categories of law and gospel as a, as a hermeneutic and an interpretive tool for the scriptures, which they are incredibly valuable, but uh, I think we've lost a little bit of sight about uh, the idea of how we are formed as Christians. Also, a lot of people hold to this understanding that well, when you preach the gospel and it regenerates a Christian heart, that sort of these good works, these virtuous qualities sort of pop up automatically in the life of the Christian. And the only trouble with that is when we look at Christian experience, we, we don't necessarily see that happening regularly and normally across the board with every Christian. But this sort of emphasis on the gospel being able to, to do it all for us without any you know further instruction or effort on our parts, I think sometimes is, is a false view that's pervaded Lutheranism. So I don't know if people have necessarily rejected the teachings of vice and virtue so much as they've just been overlooked. Has it been due to a false dichotomy? And I think about a famous quote, quote from a Lutheran theologian that Christianity doesn't move you from vice to virtue, it moves you from virtue to Christ. And it seems to present to me a false dichotomy between the completed work of Christ on behalf of the sinner and the life of the Christian. Yeah. Well, certainly, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there is no uh, Christian without knowing Christ. And so at just a fundamental level, uh, faith being worked by the Spirit through the proclamation of the Word of God is, is first and foremost in the life of any Christian. But as it moves us towards Christ, we also have to think to ourselves, what does uh, a Christ-like life look like? And uh, if we were to look at the life of Jesus and, and sort of analyze it through the lens of the virtues, for instance, we would see that uh, often he exemplifies uh, these virtues, or as Luther would say, the fruit of the Spirit in his own life. And so if we're called to follow in Jesus' footsteps, it, it just follows that those are the sort of qualities that we want to cultivate in our own life as well. How did Martin Luther connected the Christian's daily struggle against the devil, the flesh, and the world directly to baptism? 
in the small catechism that most people are familiar with in the fourth part, he says, what does daily baptism indicate? And he says, we need to drown the old man and his sinful desires so that the new men we are being created to be in Christ Jesus might rise up. And so you see a little bit of that flavor of battle there, that putting to death of the old man or the, the sinful nature and the passions of the flesh as something that we need to, a task we need to engage in each and every day. And then when you get to the large catechism, he sort of spells it out even a little bit more. He says, well, what is that old Adam? And uh, remarkably, uh, he uses a list that includes six out of uh, what have now become known as the seven deadly sins, or uh, what were uh, primarily in the church known as these chief vices, these source sins that reside in every human heart as, as part of our fallen nature. And he says, that's what a baptism uh, means. Yes, that we're claimed by Christ and that we're his children, but also that we actively battle against the sinful nature that remains in us even after baptism is not put to death finally until we die and, and are received into our Lord's presence. What had become of the view of vice and virtue before Luther? Well, prior to Luther, the scholastic theologians of the Roman Catholic Church had been a bit enamored with Aristotle and his understanding of the vice and virtues. And unfortunately, what that came with was a idea of, of vice is just, they're just kind of bad habits, things that we need to overcome so we can be more virtuous people. But for what? So that we are looking more holy, so that we're kind of cleansing our souls day by day, so that one day Jesus can pronounce us righteous and holy forever. So it really fed into uh, a sanative understanding, uh, a Roman Catholic understanding of how we're justified and sanctified, that it's part of this lifelong uh, cleansing. The trouble with that is it obscured the real problem with vices, and I'm sure we'll get into that in future questions, that vices aren't just you know, these bad habits we embrace that uh, we, we kind of want to be better people. Vices really have idolatry at their heart, sinful pride and idolatry, and so they foster unbelief. And so I think that the danger of them was misunderstood. Further, virtues, virtues were sort of for the betterment of myself, so that I'm a more virtuous person, they didn't always have their end in serving a neighbor tangibly in the world. And so they could become like a kind of an egotistical striving for human betterment as opposed to being preliminary ends with the further goal of actually working a concrete work on behalf of my neighbor in need. So what traditional categories of vice and virtue did Luther adopt? I've mentioned kind of one category already, uh, uh, the seven deadly sins. That's really kind of a name that comes along later in the tradition of the Church. Earlier, as I said, they were kind of seen as these principal or fundamental vices. Uh, Jesus lists a few of them in uh, Mark 7 when he talks about how sinful desire comes from within, out out of the heart of man. And actually, Luther finds these categories very helpful because it diagnoses sin not just at the outward level of word or deed, but within the heart where, you know, the only person that knows about that sin is, is the sinner himself and his God. And so he finds those very useful and uses them. Uh, what Luther kind of moves away from is a, a scholastic understanding of virtue where you had the, the four cardinal virtues, uh, justice, courage, uh, temperance, and, and prudence, uh, as well as the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Those were kind of a how Thomas Aquinas, in his famous work, uh, Summa Theologica, sort of defined virtue. And Luther moves away from that towards a more scriptural list of virtues. He actually prefers Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Luther says these are truly Christian virtues. It's not that the other virtues were 
not useful or that Luther didn't reflect on them occasionally, but he really saw that we should focus on those qualities that Scripture says the Spirit will bring into our heart. What did Luther make of the teaching of the philosopher Aristotle, and why is that important? Well, as I mentioned uh, earlier, Aristotle's teaching had kind of been co-opted by the scholastics in the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, it wasn't all necessarily bad, but the way it was used, sort of as this working towards holiness, really uh, undermined Luther's driving home of that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It fostered an understanding uh, that had some assimilation with notions of works righteousness, which, of course, were were what Luther was trying to overcome, so that the sinner, uh, terrified by (laughs) the proclamation of the law and judgment, could find comfort in a gracious God who loved them for the sake of Christ. And so Aristotle's teachings of, uh, you know, becoming a more virtuous person and by our own effort, I think that was the key as well, is that Aristotle thought, you know, you, by virtue of your own uh, character formation and practicing of virtues, can become better. And, of course, that completely undermined the gospel. So I think uh, Luther's most judgmental quote of Aristotle, he says, you know, Aristotle is to theology as darkness is to light, you know. So he, he really had no use for him, especially in the beginning. Later on, he comes around a little bit and acknowledges that Aristotle had some natural understanding of natural law and virtue that was beneficial for society. But when it came to understanding the gospel, he, he, he felt Aristotle needed to be overcome and done away with. Go into a little more detail on, on the role of, we would call it concupiscence, or sinful desire in Luther's understanding of this issue. Yeah, well, when you're trying to teach people to be better people and to you know become more holy, as the Catholic Church was doing, you really can't call in just an inner desire, such as maybe in a feeling of anger or envy. You really don't want to highlight that as sinful, because there's no escape from that. No matter how hard we would ever try, we can't do away with the fact that the old Adam resides in us even after baptism. And so I guess maybe to make matters seem easier, the Catholic Church sort of denied concupiscence or inner desire as, you know, they said it's not sinful. It's kind of like tinder. If it's caught on fire by the flames of evil deeds, then it becomes sinful. But if it's not, don't worry about it. Whereas Luther comes along and says, are you kidding me? It's because those sinful desires reside in your inner heart that that's the origin of any sin that could ever come forth and express itself in the world and, and hurt another or, or dishonor God. And so he really rehabilitates our understanding of the radical nature of sin and says, even those things deep in the core and the inner recesses of your heart are, are sinful, that's because original sin dwells within you, and now all of a sudden, Jesus can't be a band-aid for a weak heart, Jesus needs to be a lifesaver of a dead heart, a heart that is actually in rebellion against God. And so it really magnifies the gospel by uh, rightly assessing the nature of our sinful desire. It's, it's deadly to us. Why was proper fear, love, and trust central to Luther's understanding of vice and virtue? Well, you know, Luther has this this meaning of the first commandment that I think every Lutheran Christian who's ever been catechized probably remembers, because uh, it's, it's the first one they probably learn, is that we should fear, love, and trust in God in all things. And really, it's a lack of fearing, loving, and trusting in God that gives rise to breaking of all the commandments and really gives rise to all vices within our heart. And so uh, it can begin by fearing, for instance, that we maybe we won't have enough resources or money to care for our family or to to buy our food or to pay for our homes. And so we have this fear. We don't trust that God is a good and gracious giver who looks out for my best needs. I I fear I won't have enough. 
And so then what happens is I take matters into my own hands, right? I begin to figure out ways through my greed to procure more money and resources. I become a lover of money, so to speak, because then I feel more secure. And what happens then is my trust ultimately is put in something like mammon or money, Luther said was the most common idol in all the earth, rather than in my Lord. Now, that doesn't always result in a loss of faith, but the point is, if we continue down that path our entire lives, embracing money and trusting in goods more than we trust in God to help us, there could be a point at which uh, we abandon faith in our God and, and put it completely in worldly things. And so fearing, loving, and trusting God is central then to avoiding vice and embracing virtues in our lives. Dr. Michael Fieberkorn is our guest, author of the new book, Battle of the Soul, Luther Reforms, Vice and Virtue. We'll discuss vice and idolatry next. Listen to the best of the church's music for the Advent season at lutheranpublicradio.org. Sacred music for the Advent season, lutheranpublicradio.org. When Christ came to earth, he did not come as a fully formed man. Rather, he took on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He became a lowly embryo and thereby, in this act, made every child a gracious gift of God. No asterisks, no footnotes. To learn more about the blessing of children, pick up the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, cph.org slash witness or our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio is a downtown church with members from over 40 cities around Columbus. Our attendees receive God's gifts in word and sacrament through the use of the historic liturgy, lectionary, and hymns. The divine service with communion is celebrated every Sunday at 8 and 1030 and also Wednesdays at 7. Learn more at zionlcms.org. That's zionlcms.org. At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self-contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Augustana Lutheran, Moscow, Idaho. Emmanuel Lutheran, Green River, Wyoming. Grace Lutheran, Henderson, Nevada. Emmanuel Lutheran, Holloway, Minnesota. Messiah Lutheran, Seattle, Washington. Pacific Hills Lutheran, Omaha, Nebraska. Redeemer Lutheran, St. Cloud, Minnesota. St. John Lutheran, Rosemount, Minnesota. St. Paul Lutheran, Phoenix, Arizona. And Trinity Lutheran, Scottsboro, Alabama. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. 
When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about vice and virtue. Dr. Michael Fevercorn is our guest. Before the break, you were talking about the proper fear, love, and trust of God. What's the connection between vice and idolatry? Yeah, that was kind of the insight. As I studied, I saw Luther using these concepts of vice and virtue, but he, he certainly wasn't using them the same way the the scholastics had been using them. So I sort of read and said, well, what does Luther say about these vices? And he says, I'm going to expose them for what they are. They're, they're manifestations of idolatry in our lives. They're, they're false gods we chase after. Uh, we may get to this later, and we can avoid the repetitiveness of the question again. But, uh, for instance, anger is, is me an, appointing myself as a better judge of injustice in this world than God is. When I'm angry at another person or at something going on in our world, I'm seeing an injustice. I want God to judge it then and there. I want him to mete out his justice now. And if I'm impatient with him and don't think he's doing a good job, well, I'll judge that sin by my anger or even worse expressions that anger gives expression to in our, our life. And so I've appointed myself as, as a better God than, than my Lord. You could take this again with money. I end up placing my trust in, in money over and against my God. So these, are again, are not just bad habits in my life, but they're actually little idols I erect that drive out faith and trust in Jesus. On the subject of faith, how did Luther understand the connection between faith and virtue? Well, this is kind of when we talk about sanctification and justification in the relationship. We always want to ensure we we teach correctly that there, there can be no true sanctification in moving towards holiness unless faith has been established by being justified through the merits of Christ and, and faith in Him alone. And so faith is, is definitely a prerequisite and the beginning of, of our path to virtue. But as Scripture teaches, faith, true faith and living faith expresses itself in love. What did Paul say? The, the fruit of the Spirit were love, and uh, it takes a myriad of forms. Love can be patient, it can be kind or gentle, it exercises self-control over one's passions and desires, and so love is sort of refracted uh, into these many and varied ways that we develop these dispositions that better equip us to, to serve out our neighbor in love. But without faith in the gift of the Holy Spirit working in and through us, we can't hope to achieve <laughs> any level of virtue on our own. We need faith in place as a primary prerequisite. Why did Luther teach us to discover, uncover our sins in light of the Ten Commandments? Well, in his day, there were uh, a myriad of prayer books that were aimed at helping people uh, prepare for confession or to examine their life. And there were all kinds of lists. In fact, the, the seven deadly sins was one of those lists, but there were many, many others. And people would fret that they hadn't confessed every sin or that they hadn't confessed robustly enough. They were almost trusting more in how well they had confessed than the word of absolution that was being pronounced over them. And Luther saw this as a big problem. And he says, you know, we don't need all these lists. We, we have a good list, uh, a mirror to examine our life. And he, uh, in, uh, you know, repeatedly, almost without any variance, pointed people to the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments and says, go through these and, and see how your life measures up. 
But when he did that, he did so by saying, you know, really any sin we could name is already included somewhere within the Ten Commandments. And so he didn't do away with, for instance, the seven deadly sins. He showed us how they were already present in the commandments themselves. Jesus did this, for instance, when he says, you know, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but what I'm going to say to you is that if you lust after another woman in your heart, that is adultery. So it's already part of the sixth commandment at the level of the inner heart. And so, you know, Jesus himself associates lust, one of the deadly sins, with the sixth commandment. He does a similar thing with the fifth commandment. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, you have murdered him in your heart. And so he's already sort of drawing up this tradition of the vices into the context of the Ten Commandments so that it would be simpler for the Christian to understand and, and really drive the Ten Commandments down deep into the heart as Jesus did, not just at the level of, again, word or deed. So for Luther, what was the fight of faith? Well, for him, the fight of faith is is what he describes in the catechism. It's daily drowning the old man and and daily allowing the new man to to rise up. Satan is allying himself, the world, and uh, our desires against us every day. Uh, We wake up, he's, uh, what does Peter call him, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so that's his intention. (laughs) He has one goal in life, and that's for anyone who has faith and trust in Jesus to at some point abandon that faith and trust in something else altogether. And so uh, he uses all his forces sort of against us. And, and if we just sit there sort of inert and, and are, you know, not alert about the fight, we don't watch over our lives as Jesus told us to, because we don't know the day or the hour. That's a common emphasis this Advent season, then we're more easy prey. And so we wake up each day sort of examining our life and saying, what's got a hold of me today? If I'm feeling angry in my heart, then I need to pray about that. I need to confess that. I need to think about how I can exercise gentleness and patience in my life so that I can keep God's fifth commandment to uphold the lives of my neighbor. So that's kind of it. It's just every day evaluating us for what our heart is entangled up in and, and actively working against that so that Satan wouldn't outwit us and make us passive concerning the sin we battle. What place does the Holy Spirit have in that fight? Well, everything. Everything. And I think this is a big danger when we talk about vice and virtue and something that I hope uh, people who would read my book or or read about vice and virtue would not lose sight of is uh, it's easy to begin to think that we fight this alone by our own power and then we would be completely mistaken. We fight in and by the power of the Spirit, that's clear. Uh, When we're victorious over vice in our life, when we do see virtues being cultivated, we don't get to stand up and take credit for that and say, this was my doing. We give the Holy Spirit all credit. On the other hand, (laughs) in this sort of paradoxical way, uh, we are also held accountable for uh, the works we do in the flesh in the end. And, And so we have a role to play. And it's, it's a very mysterious connection there, saying that the Holy Spirit is 100% behind all of our sanctification and our development and holiness, and yet also turning around and looking at each individual and saying, you'll be accountable for how well this is done. But that's sort of the mystery of the faith, as Jesus tells Nicodemus when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the wind blows where it pleases, you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. And so it might be difficult to nail down, but I think that we, we maintain that paradox of... of making every effort we can to cooperate in and alongside the Holy Spirit, not to resist his work in our life, not to shove him out of our life, but also then acknowledging that that he is alone at work in our life to bring us holiness and sanctification. Let's get into some of the particulars of the, the pairs of vice and virtue 
that we find. Mm-hmm. How should we understand envy and kindness in light of the Ten Commandments? Well, in the book, I try to pair some of the common vices and their contrary virtues with particular commandments. And I would just say to the reader, these are helpful associations. They make a lot of sense, but they shouldn't be seen as rigid or as if these are the only connections that could be made. But for the sake of just walking through this, for instance, envy and kindness pair particularly well with the Eighth Commandment. Uh, we know the Eighth Commandment is don't bear false witness, but it's also for the sake of, what, defending the reputation of our neighbor, speaking well of him, as it happens in the English translation, explaining everything in the kindest way. So envy is when I see others in my life and what they have, and I wish I were more like them. I wish I had those things, their status, their reputation, their honor. And what that can do is lead to me trying to undermine them, undercut them, demean them, slander them, so that in society's eyes or in in my community's eyes, they look less so that maybe I can look more. So sullying another's reputation is one of the common forms envy will take. Well, how do I fight against that? Well, I need to learn to be kind to my neighbor, to not see them as some rival that to be envied, but rather to celebrate their presence in our midst. Some people are more talented in us than other areas, and rather than be envious of that, we could be glad that they're a part of our community and celebrate the unique gifts they bring. When I develop a kind disposition as opposed to an envious one, now I'm better equipped. I better have the tools to carry out the positive side of that Eighth Commandment, to defend them, speak well of them, and explain everything in the kindest way. So that's kind of how those, the vices and the virtues can almost sort of pair with the the negative and positive sides of the commandments. To embrace the vice is to push against the negative side, what the Eighth Commandment prohibits, but to embrace the virtue is to prepare ourselves to keep the positive side of the commandment. What do the commandments say about greed and its corresponding virtue, generosity? Yeah, I pair these with the Seventh Commandment, uh, Do Not Steal, which, of course, is uh, protecting the possessions and livelihoods of our neighbor. Uh, Also, the Ninth and Tenth Commandments prohibit us from coveting, because what our neighbor has is his or hers. And so greed wants more for myself. It's going to infringe on my ability to uphold God's Seventh Commandment. How do I put greed to death? How do I daily drown the old atom of greed inside me that trusts in possessions? I have to practice being a generous person. I need to give more of what God has blessed me with away because what inevitably happens is I bless my neighbors with some of the gifts I've been given. I realize I still have enough left for myself and to provide for my livelihood. And so the grip greed has on my heart is loosened a bit. And again, now I can gladly uphold and protect my neighbor's possessions. I'm not always seeking more for myself, but I can let him have what is his and and honor that as well. How do the commandments address gluttony? It kind of pairs with lust and the virtues of temperance and chastity. Yeah, so this is kind of a, a one that probably in modern ears sounds weird. So we'll just start with lust. It's easy to see how lust would lead us to commit adultery and, and break the sixth commandment, defile our marriage through unfaithfulness. And of course, chastity, uh, if you're unmarried, that means refraining from sexual relations. But within marriage, chastity just means limiting those sexual relations to the one flesh union of the spouse God has given you. And so it's easy to see how those readily pair with the sixth commandment. Gluttony, probably most modern Christians would think about overindulging or eating as a a fifth commandment issue because it's related to my body, it's unhealthy. 
But for the ancients, prior to our time, the connection between gluttony and lust is long in the heritage and it's established. And the idea is when we can't manage ourselves in relation to food and drink, and by the way, for the ancients, gluttony was far more than just overeating. It was snacking really without a need to. It was kind of eating ravenously or too particularly or spending way too much on food. There were all kinds of different ways you could not manage yourself well with relation to food and drink. But what they realized is when you couldn't do that, you also couldn't control your sexual urges and desires. In fact, they would say gluttony fuels the fires of of lust and unchastity. And so practicing managing ourselves in relation to food or drink was like a training ground to conquering bigger, maybe potentially more dangerous sins in our life. I think it was Gregory once said, uh, if we cannot manage ourselves with regard to a bite we put in our mouth, how can we possibly think that we're going to win battles in the larger fight of faith? We haven't even begun to stand up and fight. And this was really a connection for me, because if you think about it, Jesus, what does he do before he goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan? He fasts. Or think about the time the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, how come we couldn't drive the demon out? And he says, well, this one only comes out by prayer and and fasting. All of a sudden, I started to understand what fasting might mean for the Christian life. It's it's training ground to kind of teach us how to suppress some of our, you know, our most innate and basic desires so that when bigger fights come our way, we've had a little training in the battle and we can overcome them as well. We're talking with Dr. Michael Fieberkorn about the Christian's struggle against vice and for virtue. We'll talk about the Ten Commandments' counterpart to anger next. Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. Please include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can donate online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. For a year-end gift of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Over Ruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2023. What makes Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois, so special? Our new members talk about the family atmosphere, the welcoming people, and the outstanding music. But most importantly, you'll be confronted with your sin and comforted with the assurance that Jesus has removed that sin so that you can live each day as his baptized and forgiven child. Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church is at 612 North State Street in Freeburg, Illinois. Sunday worship is at 9 a.m., Sunday school and Bible classes at 1020 a.m. Call 618-539-5664. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the Christian struggle against vice and for virtue with Dr. Michael Freeberghorn. In about 10 minutes, we'll discuss the biblical canon with Pastor John Stein. Dr. Fieberkorn, what is the Ten Commandments counterpart to anger? Yeah, I think patience is what you're going to see most there, or, or, or gentleness, that we would be slow to speak, slow to anger, that we would not rush to judgment. But I think ultimately, from a Christian perspective, we would have to include in the idea of patience and gentleness the understanding of forgiveness. It's difficult to remain angry with someone that we genuinely forgive from the heart, Luther said, (laughs) why do you refuse to forgive this person who has sinned against you? You know, do you not realize you do far more harm for your soul by refusing to forgive them than they've done to you? You're doing eternal harm. And he would point us back to that petition in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's probably the unique virtue, along with uh, humility, which we'll get to in a moment, of the Christian faith. What sets us apart from the rest of the world is that we're willing to overlook a wrong and forgive it and move forward in, in faith in a renewed relationship as opposed to just simmering in anger. How should we understand the vice of sloth according to the Ten Commandments? Yeah, sloth is not not a word we use a lot in today's society. If if I asked a kid, hey, what's a sloth? They'd, they'd tell me it's an animal that moves really, really slow. If we have a counterpart word, I think it would be lazy. But sloth was deeper than that. Sloth was sort of an indifference towards our spiritual duties, the good works that God calls us to in Christ Jesus. And Luther saw primarily here to the good work of attending to God's Word in our life, of hearing His Word proclaimed in our midst, of learning that Word and walking in it. For him, this is really a a third commandment issue. Not being in the presence of the preaching of God's Word is, is slothful, because when we're not in the presence of God's Word, we're not exhorted to those good deeds God calls us to, and they remain undone. And I think it's also important to realize that Sloth is not just lazy or or neglecting the good that needs to be done by just sitting around, which is probably what we hear if we hear the word, but also it's through distracting ourselves with things that are just not important. So spending an inordinate amount of time watching Netflix or scrolling social media or taking our children to sporting events, you know, every day, every night of the week or every weekend, all these things fill our lives with things that aren't the one thing needful, which is God's Word. To be slothful is to sort of turn aside from our spiritual duties uh, rather than embrace them with a zeal or a diligence, which would be the counterpart virtue, to be zealous for the works of God in His kingdom. Talk about pride as a vice and the virtue of humility. Yeah, so this is one thing that Aristotle would get completely wrong, and I think all philosophical understanding of vice and virtue just misses. Pride is usually actually seen as a a great virtue, you know, to be proud of oneself and confident. To be humble was seen as somewhat weak. And yet when we look to the life and example of our Lord Jesus Christ, especially the picture of him painted in Philippians 2, that he, he did not desire equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Because you see, a lot of these vices are trying to set ourselves on par with God or take his role. Yet what did he do? He humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He sacrificed his life for the sake of others. He was humble. That's what the humiliation of Jesus means, is not that he was somehow embarrassed 
because he had to be crucified and died, but he willingly lowered himself in solidarity with sinful humanity. And of course, is ultimately exalted again by the Father. But we see in Jesus' life an example that the chief virtue that overcomes what is the chief vice of pride. In fact, pride is more than we can probably get into in this interview, but it lies behind all of these other vices as sort of the root of the tree. Uh, pride, most of all, needs to, to be killed, and how it is killed is through our, our humility, our embracing ourselves as creatures tied to the humus or the earth, the ground, along with uh, the rest of God's creation. In other words, we're creatures, not God. And so we humble ourselves and place ourselves in that spot, just as Jesus did. Even as God, he empties himself for us. And so that, above all, needs to be the driving force behind any understanding of Christian virtue, is that humility is to be uh, emulated and cultivated, uh, not to be avoided, that our pride would be fueled. Finally, how do we revive Luther's teaching about vice and virtue without obscuring the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked this question, and especially to end, so hopefully the listener uh, are, is hanging on and realize anytime we talk about vices and virtues or anytime we place an emphasis on sanctification or obedience, we do run the real risk of obscuring the gospel. It's a temptation of man to trust in himself, to think that our efforts are going to somehow overcome the separation with our God that's been caused by our sin. And we can't let that happen. I think we do that by, again, acknowledging that God is behind our every success, by acknowledging the role of the power of the Holy Spirit and all of that, and also by not having Christians fret about their relative progress. Oh, I'm still greedy, or I'm still, boy, I still get angry all the time. The point is not that we somehow steadily, according to some pre-established track, become more and more virtuous and holy as time goes on. That may indeed happen over the course of a lifetime, but there's probably also going to be periods of regression, periods of valleys where we thought we were taking two steps forward and then all of a sudden we find ourselves 10 steps back. And if we're trusting in ourselves, that, that's going to obscure the gospel promise that we're forgiven in Jesus, that we're his baptized children. I think the thing to keep in mind is not necessarily trying to evaluate each day, where am I, how far along am I, but rather to say, am I fighting against these things that I deal with every day in my life? As long as I'm struggling, as long as I'm seeking to live in the identity God has given me in Christ Jesus and through my baptism, I'm fighting the good fight of faith. <laughs> May not be very successful some days. Some days are better than others. But it's when I give up the fight, so to speak. It's when I lay down arms. It's when I say, you know what, I'm just going to let my anger take control of me. Or I'm just going to embrace this greed in my life. That's when faith is in real danger. And Scripture does talk about how these weeds in our life, the riches and cares of the world, can choke out faith, as Jesus says in the parable of the sower. So they're dangerous, and they need to be addressed, and they need to be fought. But I think we really obscure the gospel if we focus on progress or levels of holiness. I think the important thing to do is get up each day and fight. Dr. Michael Fieberkorn is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in St. Charles, Missouri. He earned his Master's of Divinity and Doctor of Philosophy degrees from Concordia Seminary, and he's author of the new book, Battle of the Soul, Luther Reforms, Vice, and Virtue. You can purchase this new book on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Ask for Battle of the Soul. Dr. Fieberkorn, thank you. 
Well, thank you so much. Yeah, excellent questions. I can tell you, you read the book and thought about it, and uh, would love to talk with you about it again sometime. And that and that goes for any reader as well. Reach out if need be if you have confusion about the things that are said in the book. Uh, I'd love the chance to clarify and talk with you further about that sometime. When we come back, Pastor Don Stein joins us to discuss the biblical canon. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we launch into the prophet Micah with The Lord is coming, exile is coming, woe to oppressors, do not preach, and rulers denounced. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendorse.org or on your favorite podcast provider. Do you need a rest from the world's headlong rush to Christmas? Some place where you and your family can slow down and prepare for Christ's birth at the church's rather than the world's pace? A midweek evening Advent service is the perfect time for your first visit to a Christ-centered, cross-focused Lutheran church. Learn more on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org or send an email to talkback at issuesetc.org. Memorial Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memorial Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Husband, wife, daughter, son, grandchildren, godchildren, pastor, the kids at church, basically everyone of your Christian loved ones is catered for at Ad Crucem. We are the place to go for all your Christmas purchases. Stock up on our amazing Christmas cards, Christmons, Christmas ornaments, unique Christian jewellery, springly cookie moulds, gifts and much more. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M. Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where, without baptism, infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized? The Issues Etc. Comment Line, 618-223-8382.